So when people behave this way, when they think normatively about you or about organizational behavior, about anything, they're thinking about what organizations should do. And this is a really great signal that's your shortcut into the world of nonprofit management because every time you ever say the word should, somebody's behaving normatively. They're imposing expectations on the nonprofit sector one time or another. And sometimes these get pretty prescriptive, right? So do you see some examples of kind of prescriptive expectations in the nonprofit sector in that words chapter? There's some, that was real heavy prescription going on in that chapter. Where did you start to see the word should? Yeah. And you were specifically like this one also differentiating between the words. So it's like they should govern this way, they should govern that way, which I thought was interesting, but under the the hybrid one, there wasn't as much like direct, I guess. Exactly. And even there are some names that are mentioned in that chapter because there are a few people who are picked out as examples of governance experts, including somebody named John Carver who makes a lot of money being a governance expert doing governance consulting. And he's a very prescriptive, isn't he? He's got a certain way he thinks boards should be organized, a certain way he thinks they should behave. This is going to be our major theme today because what I want to accomplish at the end of this hour discussion that we're going to have is not going to be much lecture and we'll be really hopefully a discussion. What I really want to accomplish is for you guys to understand the difference between what boards must do and what they should do. Okay. So this is the difference between the normative world and the legal world, really. Legally expected boards. Creating your nonprofit boards in your groups. You want the legal list, right? You want to know what that legal list is. Wouldn't it be also very useful if you knew what the options are? And you had some sense thinking about a new young organization like you're creating, or older, more traditional organizations, or heavily government-influenced organizations like Teach for America. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a sense of the choices those organizations have to make, but the choices are really options for them in terms of how they organize their boards, okay? So that's our goal for today. So to get started, let's do a little thing pair share. And what I'd like you to do is answer this question, finish this sentence. To be successful, a nonprofit board should do X. Be successful, a nonprofit board should do X. Okay? So give me those five notes to have that conversation in groups of two, please. So what'd you come up with? What'd you come up with? Yes. Uh, to be successful, a nonprofit board should keep the nonprofit accountable to their initial mission. Keep them accountable to their mission. Thank you, Jordan. Someone else? Yes. I thought we said to get the community involved. Get the community involved. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, maintain transparency. Maintain transparency. Right. What else? Be on one accord. Be on one accord. Okay. So. The way we describe it in the boardroom is speak with one voice. That's actually a really important principle. The board can disagree in the room. I've been involved in disagreements on boards. But when a vote is taken and a decision is made, it has to reflect the organization as a whole. You're supposed to, if you were in a minority group and you lost the decision, you still have to speak on behalf of the whole board. Other thoughts? To be successful, a nonprofit board has to. Yeah. Definitely bring the organization up to see the bigger picture because you get very focused on the day to day tasks. So okay. being able to see that big picture throughout the working day to day. See the big picture. And another way we think about that is the board has to 
have a strategic focus, right? So they can't be involved in all the operational micro details. They have to be able to step back, see the big picture, the long view, whatever metaphor you want. Well, fun. What did you guys come up with? Some research on nonprofits this week. We said we should keep separate from the board and the CEO. Keep separate from the board and the CEO. Okay. So maintain a separate role. Why? Why is that important? Like noticing each other's job. So they have distinct roles, don't they? If you think of it from an organizational chart point of view, here's the, we'll call them the CEO, you call them the executive director, but they're the chief staff person of this organization, right? The ED. Where's the board? Where's the staff? Usually they report to the CEO, right? Anybody here in arts organizations? Interested in arts organizations? Right? So that's typical hierarchy there, right? Pretty basic hierarchy. What happens in arts organizations sometimes? You might have an organization with two brains, the creative brain and the operational managerial brain. Yeah, and that actually creates some problems. Very often, these organizations really only succeed. Let's not talk about the failures. They succeed when they work out really clear divisions of responsibility and really clear reporting lines, and they have a really clear mission that everybody knows how to adhere to, so they don't end up with competing visions and competing missions on how that organization should behave. Those are harder organizations to manage, okay? So the board's in a supervisory role, and the board is also, as you guys know from your chapter, the board is the legal authority for the organization. There's only one group of people who have the legal authority for that organization. Anybody remember the term that's used in work for that responsibility? Hint, three sets of duties. It's that term fiduciary. So to be successful, boards also have to be fiduciaries. And again, you see another Latin root there. And that's, these are the people who are entrusted with the financial, and then legal responsibility for this organization. There's only one group of people who are. And that's another reason why Hofan's absolutely right, and the board and CEO really do have to have distinct roles. Hannah, what'd you guys come up with? Um, we talked about how, I mean, it kind of falls under transparency, I think mean, they should kind of know what's going on, but then at the same time, back off. So kind of whatever else. Okay, so they have to beware of what? So know what's going on. Beware of day-to-day -day operations. Yeah. I mean, they've got to have some level of knowledge here, right? We'll just call it organizational performance. Okay, well, you're going to know if this list is complete right now if I ask you this question. Is this everything that it takes to make an organization successful? Is it all here? No. What's missing still? Yeah. Money, right? Okay, so they also have to ensure the financial health of the organization. Very good. I think you guys are pretty close. Something seems to be missing, though. Okay, we'll keep thinking about that question. Okay, let me ask you a different question then. Back to that question about normativism. What up here has to happen for that organization to be legally compliant? legally compliant. We're not talking about performance right now. We're just talking about meeting the expectations of regulators. Don't they have to be aware of the organizational performance because different states have different requirements for their organizations? And why do they have to legally be responsible for performance? It's one of those fiduciary duties. We're going to get to that in just a sec, okay? Because we're going to talk about those duties. Cameron? 
they have to like all the functions of the organization have to align with the mission. So going with money like any funding that they have or any organization expenses has to pertain to the mission. So like all their profits, so to say, go back into the organization. So you're talking about financial stewardship and particularly not just for the health of the organization, but for legal compliance. So yeah, we're already at the list. Thanks. That was a really important one. Who's creating a C3 in here? You're going to create some sort of charity, probably a public charity. Anybody creating a C4? Anybody want to get political this election season? Okay, so you're, so you're not quite there, I can tell, because you kind of giving me that look. Now, probably what most of you guys are going to end up creating is some organization that fulfills the legal requirements for being a C3. A charitable, a religious mission, public benefit organization of some kind, right? Educational activities, youth services, social services, health services, lessening the burdens of government. These are all parts of the charitable definition of the tax code. Who's responsible for making sure that organization continues to raise and spend money within the constraints of the law? The board, of course, the board is. So yeah, it's absolutely fiduciary duty. It's called the duty of care. But this is out of the work, right? Remember the other two duties now, those three fiduciary duties? Yeah. Loyalty and obedience. Loyalty and obedience. And what do they mean? Duty of care is about due diligence about being active, maybe even proactive in fulfilling your responsibilities. Duty of loyalty is about avoiding conflicts of interest. So loyalty to what? Loyalty to the interests and the mission of the organization. And particularly putting your own interests behind and putting the interests of the organization forward. And I'll give you some examples of this in a minute. Duty of obedience? What's that? Sounds kind of religious, doesn't it? Yeah. Duty of obedience to like, uh, I mean, the law, or to like, whatever. I mean, if you're a 501c3, you like took the responsibilities of being that. Very good. And the best way to think about obedience, is, as Carla, just to expand on your idea a little bit, is to think of that there's an internal requirements an organization imposes on itself through bylaws, a charter, constitution, policies that the organization has created that it has to follow. Okay. And then there's external expectations the state may impose on that organization, particularly public law. And don't forget, the nonprofit organizations are responsive, to, are responsible for all the forms of public law that are out there: criminal law, contract law, employment law. Okay. So there's a lot to be obedient to, even just beyond tax law. So that's the duty of obedience. So let's come up with some fun examples. This is where we get to have some fun because. You've probably encountered an organization sooner or later that you thought was good at these things, really exemplary. But maybe you've encountered, maybe in the news, hopefully or somewhere else, you've encountered an organization that didn't seem to be, or um, was it, where's Anastasia? The Teach for America, the, the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance example of Teach for America, where they're saying something seems to be wrong with this organization. So give yourselves a couple of minutes and come up with an example just one of these. You don't have to come up with all three, but just one of these categories could be hypothetical of a board that is fulfilling that fiduciary duty and an example of a board that isn't. Okay? So let me give you a couple minutes. You can do that in Teams again if you like. We're going to reconvene now. So I'm glad I got you guys talking about Question? Well, I was just going to ask, like, 
certain things align with all three categories? What a great question. Let's table that question for just a second. Let's see if they do. We'll see if we can come up with an example of something that might fall into more than one category. I'm not 100% sure, but maybe an example of duty of loyalty could be if a board member is part of another board or part of a business in that area that maybe conflicts as far as resources or as far as that mission and vision go that wouldn't align with their duties as a board member for that organization. Yeah, so you're talking about the individual who's sitting on that board having some sort of community responsibility or they're being in a profession where it conflicts somehow with the Yeah, like maybe there's an environmental sustainability issue or there's a shared resource issue or right, something right. that doesn't exactly, it's not fully loyal. Yeah, so your personal life, your own values, or maybe what's important to you in your business and the trade that you're in interfering somehow with the mission of the organization. Okay, that's a really great example. That'd be a violation, potentially, of the duty of loyalty because you might end up having divided conflicts of interest when you make decisions on behalf of that organization, but also maybe the duty of care because you're not maybe paying attention where you should be paying attention. Other example, Alyssa? Well, going along with that, could there also be an example of obedience as well? Because if that person individually doesn't adhere to the mission, then it could set the whole organization off track, which would go against the... So if you end up ignoring the rules, internal rules or the external rules of that organization, you might end up also violating this fiduciary duty of obedience. Did we answer the question? Yeah, that didn't take long, did it? The really big, knotty kind of issues. Sometimes those knotty issues are the ones that seem to be just the most all-encompassing when it comes to the board role. Other examples that you came up with? Yeah. Um, well, this is an executive example, but um, we've talked a little bit about like mission drift and how whenever you have donors that want their money put certain ways, it could take away from the mission, which I think is interesting because two of the points of duty of obedience are adhere to donor wishes and adhere to the mission. Yeah, um, mission drift, or sometimes people refer to it as mission creep, a really great way to stop a conversation in a boardroom and say, is a mission creep going on here? Now, don't get me wrong, I think sometimes mission creep is actually healthy for an organization, sometimes it has to evolve. But on the other hand, you could end up with somebody who's kind of pushing their own agenda, pushing programming that they think is important, and that isn't necessarily consistent with the priorities of the organization as an individual. And so what fiduciary duty might that involve? Yeah. I mean, I think it involves not only just obedience, because two of the points in there, but mm -hmm. it, I think it encompasses all three, um, especially conflict of interest and potentially. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it could potentially be all three, but definitely. Yeah. Yep, good. Couple more examples. I know that's already been discussed with the Teach for America, but just yeah. to classify that, we put that in their duty of care and mm -hmm. duty of care because the board might have, you know, they might be passive, like not making them release those for the better interests of the company or organization. Very good. Yeah. You know mostly about what boards <coughs> do or don't do, but think about it in terms of adjectives too. A passive board is probably a board where what's going to happen? The executive director might end up making many, many more decisions than they ought to on their own, really. Might not be very healthy decision-making for the organization. That board might not be paying attention to details that it should be paying attention to. It might be rubber stamping important financial statements without really looking at them, scrutinizing them to make sure that they're accurate and they're valid. It might be missing decisions that staff make 
that turn out to endanger the organization somehow or another, right? So passive boards are tough to manage because again, these are part-time folks. They come in at the end of the day, right? After um, the staff have already all gone home and this board comes in and they have to try to figure out how to make decisions on behalf of an organization that they may not have a lot of really deep first-hand knowledge about. But again, there are lots and lots of ways organizations can manage the board role to help boards understand what they should be doing. And we'll talk about those in just a little while. Yeah. So I sat in on like a conference or something, mm -hmm. but it was like the executive director or CEO, he didn't have much to say. He let the board members talk and stuff like that. And then after that, I was like, why? Isn't he so, you know, they basically said the smartest person in the room realized he's not the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. So he had all these board members come along. But then that was like me seeing that chemistry. Um, and they had like a lot of diversity of knowledge and how to actually work together. Is this something you read or a first-hand experience? First-hand yeah. experience. First experience. Yeah. What I'm hearing there is you saw some people taking on some roles in the boardroom that were a little hard for you to understand, yeah. right? What was going on there? Maybe you saw a really healthy exercise of the duties of care, loyalty, and obedience, right? Or maybe you saw people kind of trying to take control of the organization and ignoring this value of group decision-making and deliberative process. There's a reason board members are a group of people. And there's still some states, you're interested in sort of the regulatory side of this and the law and public policy side of this, the trend is away from small boards towards larger boards, state regulation. And there's still a few states, Colorado I think is one of them, where you can have a nonprofit organization, you can create a corporate, a nonprofit domestic corporation in the state of Colorado with one board member. So I can see from your reactions, you understand the problems in that really quickly. Where's the deliberative body? Where's the group of people who are going to be, the law would say, a group of people is going to be legally more objective and more interested in their fiduciary duties than a single person. Single person controlling an organization seems risky to most people. And so public law, state law, has now required a minimum of three people. And if you're in a United Way member agency and you want to get money from the United Way, you have to have a minimum of five people have a legitimate board. See any commonality in those numbers? They're all prime numbers, yes, and they're all odd numbers. Meaning, you also want a tie-breaking ability in these organizations. So these are organizations that are supposed to be making decisions and taking action. So that's a form of fiduciary duty, isn't it? Anybody want to take a wild guess and guess like the largest boards out there? Sort of the other end of the spectrum? Do some research. One of the best pieces of advice I can give you in this class, and my students don't do enough of it, so I'm going to tell you this would really serve you well, is go out and spend a lot of time researching other nonprofit organizations. Browse their websites. Look at their 990 forms. Okay? And you'll learn a lot about the way they organize themselves, and you'll find a lot of useful documents just on their websites that will help you. And that's, unless Professor Fulton disagrees, that, that's all citable information that will help you learn about other nonprofits. Just take a wild guess. Largest boards out there. Maybe in United Way, like the largest, maybe the largest board. Maybe. How many? Do you know? No, like a couple hundred. A couple hundred board members. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's that many. I feel like if you get too many then then it, it would cause problems. Right, okay. So now we're at the other end of the spectrum. Didn't I just say more is better? What happens when you get up to, say, 50 or 75 board members? First of all, they won't fit in this room, right? 
So think about that scenario for a minute. Is anything easier with a larger board? More brain power, more money, right? Especially if they're all writing checks. But what makes it harder? That uh, also leads to different opinions on Very good. Of the different board members, which may make it a bit more complex. It may make decision making more complex, but it also, a diverse board may make decision making more representative. <laughs> Right? Deliberation will certainly take a long time, wouldn't it, Bryson? Right? If you've got 50 people in the room, you'll have to come to a consensus about something. Bailey? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like the board meetings would take a lot longer, especially like even knowing that board members usually have other jobs that they have to be in and stuff, and the CEO needs to be working on other things. Probably don't meet as often. Yeah. Right? Another recommended practice out there is to have board meeting quite frequently. The United Way won't fund a board that doesn't meet at least four times a year. Because, again, back to the duty of care, the United Way would say, well, if you're only meeting once, maybe twice a year, how in the world can you guys be paying attention to the operations of this organization? So the American Red Cross is a great example of a board that used to have a traditional governance model, and they had 50 board members. So I think they met once, maybe twice a year, probably in a very large room and not a lot of open discussion, probably very parliamentary process for making things happen, meaning that it was harder maybe to have good debates and good discussions, right? So the work probably got done in committees. In the Red Cross's case, most of the work actually got done in the mini-board known as the Executive Committee. So a lot of larger nonprofit organizations have the brain of the operation is the smaller Executive Committee that comprises the officers of the board. They had six board members, this is in the Worth chapter, who were appointed board members, appointed by the President of the United States. So if you, if I were asking you to pick two board members, and one of them is appointed, and one of them isn't, one of them is maybe an elected board member, elected by the members of the organization, which of those do you think you'd worry about more when it comes to fiduciary duties? Somebody stands for election, this is not a hard question here. Somebody stands for election, really wants to represent the organization, runs a competitive election to serve on the board, and somebody where the president comes up and says, all right, Allison, it's your turn. And Allison's saying, I already work a 12-hour workday. Now I have to go sit on the board, too. You can see why the research I've done suggests that appointed board members really are weaker board members, and they create weaker boards. A model out there, and there were really three options that you saw in the words chapter from where board members come from but the appointed one is probably a weaker one. So the Red Cross ran into some problems over the years, not coincidentally that we're talking this around the anniversary of 9-11, and they ended up with a very, very weak organization with CEOs that kept turning over. So somebody mentioned, I think you did, Anastasia, you mentioned organizations where the board seems to be running everything, and that's what was happening in the Red Cross. They had CEOs who just, just, just constant turnover, constant turnover. And the organization was very weak, it was losing the public trust, and the board remodeled itself. and went from 50 down to about 15. That's called the corporate model of governance, a smaller, more nimble, more responsive and responsible board. So we see a lot more of that out there. Anybody want to venture a guess out of those three methods of board member selection, which is the most common one? You have the elected and the appointed, and then you have this third option called a self-perpetuating board. That doesn't mean they take an immortality powder and they live forever. It means that the current board members pick the next set of board members, the future board members. So it's 
always an internal process of selection. I think self-perpetuating is probably the most popular. Why so? I think that way it's easy for like a group of board members who are already working well together to kind of maybe pick and tailor, you know, other people from the community that they think they can work well with or bring something to the table that the board doesn't have already. Yeah, good. So for one thing, that current board knows what it needs, so they could reach out and find it. Well, we need more legal expertise. Let's go find it, right, Thomas? What else? As a current board member, you put forth so much work. Time effort into and that you want to pick someone that's going to take that and continue to progress. Well, I'm a good board member, so I know what it's going to take for the next person after me to be a good board member too. Yep. So you definitely see some of that, Carly. I think it really reflects the business model more, like because in a normal like company, like you would be hiring like your people and so like bringing in people you know and like going through like picking people that you feel like would fit the best is more. Yep, very good. So there's some normativism. You're talking about normativism going on there. It is the most common model out there. And one of the things you get with common models, what the majority of nonprofits are doing out there, you get credibility. So there's some real value in normativism out there. You can see I've got some suspicions about it because I think nonprofits should be very careful in making choices that fit their needs first. And maybe not always just the whole world were full of Carver models of boards. Maybe we'd be better, maybe we wouldn't be better. But you do get credibility when you're saying, well, we're following the corporate model. And all the people out in the business world say, oh, we recognize that, right? That's mentoring, I think, also helps a lot. Mentoring. Because you're picking someone that you've probably worked with in some way or another within the organization or with another organization and you've talked to them about what has been done and the work that Thomas was saying earlier. Yep. So mentoring them and showing them, you know, what is the, the vision of this organization so they can take that on. Very good. Take some notes right now, people, because what you're doing is you're developing some practices for your board. Managerial practices, board development practices, board development being board training, board learning. You're developing some ideas about what might make your board strong. And these are really good things to put into your project plans as you're developing more. So yeah, mentoring is a hot topic right now. Other thoughts? Okay, any disadvantages to self-perpetuating boards? What might go wrong? Carla? I mean, just like we were saying earlier, with the positions, like the most people might not have the best intentions. They might, know, hire, like, I know Rose had an issue if they were to call their to like their kids and not like allowing other people to now agree that you like some other kind of way for internships, but like only like allowing people that you know or not letting new kids. Yeah, so being resistant to new ideas, being resistant to disputes, being resistant to people who don't kind of fit your model of what a board member should look like. Cameron? Yeah, I was just going to say like open opportunities for the board to be kind of like really conservative and not really expand. And not willing to change. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, know, you want a great representation of different types of people. And so right. a board member might be more likely to pick someone that's similar minded or that would govern on that board in a similar way. So it wouldn't be very diverse. So boards have to, separately from their mode of selecting board members, another really key thing, I don't see it over here, but somewhere in here it would have been great if somebody had mentioned representing the stakeholders of this organization, right? Boards have to represent the stakeholders. 
Because otherwise, how can they grow? How can they evolve? And remember those really excellent first couple of chapters and where Worth is really laying out what a changing landscape there is out there for nonprofits, right? Technology's changing, the demographics in this country are changing, politics are changing, all sorts of things are changing all the time. If the board's not going to change with the people it represents, that's going to be a real problem. And so you can see the healthy side, the board kind of provides some breaks on crazy ideas, right? On the other hand, you do want a board that's willing to change. And that often requires diversification. So healthy boards and good boards have a plan of action for ensuring that they continue to be representative of their constituencies. My research suggests that boards are not very good at this. That they'll pay lip service to diversification, they don't necessarily always succeed. It is a problem out there. You're definitely going to find that boards tend to look actually a little more male than female. The nonprofit sector is about two-thirds female employees. Boards are more male, though, and definitely more white. So majority groups represented in this country. And so that's a real problem, and it's something that organizations, when they work on actively, they can succeed at it, but it takes some pretty strenuous effort for organizations to create more diverse board. And they have to be ready for it, too, because remember, homogeneous boards are boards, you know, they get along, everybody kind of understands the same language. Imagine, here's a great example, I do some research with associations. Imagine the board for periodontal pediatric nursing. Pretty narrow little niche of a medical profession. They probably all speak the same language. They probably all know one another. That's an organization that probably can afford to be a little less representative, maybe not. But on the other hand, imagine a very broad-based board with broad-based missions. A, a nonprofit has a very broad-based mission that's got to serve a much broader swath of society. They have a much stronger imperative to diversify and to create a diversification plan. Yeah, do you feel like the like the switch in the boards is like similar with age too? Because I've been mentored on experience that. Like she age. Yeah. That's a tough one. Boards are older. Very often older than the people they serve. Yeah. Anybody serve on a youth development board? Kinda wonder who are these people? Were they ever young? Right? Yeah. This is always gonna be a balancing act for boards because boards have to, for instance, still fulfill their fiduciary duties. And I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here, but explaining fiduciary duties to a 16-year-old is probably a different proposition than a 30-year-old. But boards can do this, and there are all sorts of creative ways that boards can do this if they're willing to do it. They can have youth representatives on a committee. They can have other ways of making sure that people are represented. Other thoughts before I move on? Questions? Go ahead. Um, I heard you keep saying youth development. That's what I'm doing right now. Um, they are mentoring me to actually be able to step up and show off this internship that they provided for me, which is marketing public relations. And I go take that to like the different schools mm -hmm. and yeah. tell them that they have those opportunities. That's great, yeah. So you've got somebody who's, who's willing to mentor you. It's definitely a, a popular model out there right now. So here are a few more examples of where you see these fiduciary duties in play. And you see examples, too, the two case studies, the American University case study and the Hershey case study at the end of your chapter. Those are all about fiduciary duties. There's a lot going on in those two stories. So a donor endows a new building. The board votes to place the gift in a restricted fund to ensure it's used for the agreed-on purposes. The duty of? 
They want to have policies that require them to do it, so duty of obedience, duty of care, certainly, right? Being a careful steward of the funding. A board adopts a conflict of interest policy which requires trustees to abstain, that means not, vote on matters in which they might have a business interest. Yeah, very much loyalty. I've got a great story about this one. I do a lot of you know, board coaching and board development work, and people don't want to talk about conflicts of interest. They really think it's a bad word, right, to have a conflict of interest. Have you ever gotten through a day in your life where you didn't have a conflict of interest about something, right? You guys are all here, almost all of you were here at 8 a.m., right? Stay in bed, get up and go to Professor Fulton's class, right? Conflict of interest. I needed sleep this morning. This is natural. Conflicts of interest, I think, are just a natural part of being a complex society. My advice always to boards, and to you guys as well, is just take them on and discuss them and figure out what, first of all, what's the conflict of interest here? What's in the best interest of the organization? How do we avoid this situation? So a lot of what I encourage boards to do is just be open to a healthy conversation about where those conflicts of interest happen. So here's my example. Some of you guys are arts management students, right? So you're gonna like this one. This is a community theater in Dahlonega, Georgia, where I used to live, the Holly Theater. And we were famous for putting on the traditional fall play, and I'm not making this up, there's gold in Vemdar Hills. I'm not making this up. I acted in that play. Okay, and I was on the board of this theater. Small town, 5,000 people in this town. Conflicts of interest? Sure, yeah. Two banks. One of them's, you know, one of those big franchises, BB&T, and one the local bank, the Lumpkin County Bank. So the bankers, the president of the bank sat on our board, and our accounts were with this bank. We only had two choices. And sooner or later, we needed, we we're going to put new chairs in the theater, and we needed an equity line of credit. We needed a loan. What do you do? Do you go to the other bank? Do you go to this bank? And what's the role of this banker who's sitting on our board? Any ideas for me? Conflict of interest, right? Well, what do you want to have at hand so you can make a good decision? Options. Options. And you want guidance, too, right? You want to know, well, what do our rules say? So we know how to make a good decision. So good conflict of interest policy, you can look them up online. The United Way is a great conflict of interest policy. You can find one on the irs.gov website. Lots of great options out there for you. And the good conflict of interest policies spend a lot of time focusing on the process of making the decision. Not just on what should happen, but how it should happen. And in this case, we did have a, no, we didn't have a policy. Now this was back in the 80s and the early 90s, and we didn't have a policy. So we had to make it up. But I assure you, after that, we made up a policy really fast. We had to make it up. And we basically said, well, let's talk this through. We decided we wanted the banker's involvement because he had information for us. And he could help us kind of think through the options. But we didn't want him involved in the decision because that would have been a clear conflict of interest. We formed a special committee. We invited him to sit on the committee you know, as an advisor, give us some advice. We kicked him out of the room, and we made a decision without him. But we had to be able to turn around and say to the community the next day, this is the decision we made, and that's kind of the way we made the decision. And then it happened again a few years later. Seats in the theater were a success. People came and bought a lot of tickets, and we finally had enough money so that we were going to hire our first paid staff person. Okay, so this one I'm not going to sell for you guys. You guys got to sell this one for me. And we sent out an ad. First executive director of the Holly Theater and the president of the board and the vice president of the board are married to one another. 
And guess who applies? Their daughter. I didn't sit on the search committee, but when they reported back, they said she was by far the most qualified person here. There isn't anybody who even comes in second. She's the most qualified person. What do you do? So let me turn this one to you guys, okay? Give yourselves a quick, like, just 60 seconds. What would you do first? What would you do second? We did have a conflict of interest policy by this point in time. Okay, so go to it. What would you do? What would you do first? Tailing? I guess I would, I feel like you'd want to, like, separate the vice president and the president on, like, two separate committees, like, not have them. Okay, so Haley's first worry is, do we have a block vote going on here? Okay, so let's make sure that we don't get a block vote where these two proud parents of this great artistic director are going to push in this executive director. Eric, what else? I was going to say you can look at all the other candidates' qualifications first to make sure that she like actually is qualified. And if you discover that, or if you think that she is not qualified, then you should... It's a great duty of care. Due diligence to make sure this person really is qualified for the position. Okay, go ahead. Yes, I'll just be honest. Uh -huh. I say with, with all due respect, this just don't sound reasonable. <laughs> so your, your ethical, you know, back is up here, and you're just like, I don't know if I could make this work. I don't know if I could defend this to my stakeholders. And I, I would say the best option in this case would be to address it with the board. I'll probably start with a little petition or something. And uh, when it comes down to it, it'll probably just come down to an overall vote okay. with the overall board to see if that's the so right So you just decision. say, I don't see how we're going to make this one work. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Another solution? Yeah. I think like your first conflict of interest might be the vice president and the president being married. And then like their daughter uh -huh. wanting to be, I don't know, I think I would just say like you guys can't vote. Okay. Your kid, not Remember, this is a true story. I, I will tell you, it does have a happy ending. Did not involve petitions, although I was close to petitioning at one point or another. Cameron? I think we agreed on that there should just be a reevaluation process that doesn't involve the father. Very good. So, thinking ahead, how are we going to hold this person accountable for doing a good job? Too, because right? they like, even though it's a biased perspective, they be telling the truth where she is the most qualified candidate, so you can't just like throw that off the door. So, so the word we use when we talk about board members who have no conflicts of interest, okay, these are people who are expected to be able to make objective decisions, is independent board members. You'll see this word on the IRS website. Independent meaning no ties of marriage, no major business ties or major donor ties, no blatant conflicts of interest. Right now, we already have two board members we know are not necessarily independent here. So good. What's in the best interest of the organization? Is it to hire this person or not? I mean, she's the most qualified, yes. She absolutely was, yeah. And so that's what we decided. We kind of broke it apart. We said, okay, first of all, what's in the best interest of the organization? It's to have a really talented executive director as our first paid ED. Okay, how do we make that happen? Number one, President, Vice President, you guys don't get a vote on this decision. Number two, we're going to form a new committee who's going to supervise this person, and you're not going to sit on that committee. Because they said, they, of course, were the executive committee. The officers of the board are usually the executive committee. So we're going to have a compensation committee over here supervising this person. Poor thing isn't reporting to her mom and dad. Who wants to do that anyway, right? Number three, we're passing a nepotism policy. 
which was hard, and it didn't pass, right? And that's where I kind of lost my, you guys, this can't happen again. And everybody else said, hey, it's a small town, and by the way, we love this theater, and we're doing a good job running this theater. You know, I was kind of the front page headline kind of person there saying, really, are we going to defend this tomorrow in the Dahlonega Nugget? which was the local newspaper. I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> All right? Yeah, that pretty much settled it. So we did it. We said, yeah, there's a conflict of interest here, but we're going to live with it because we're going to manage it. And we're going to manage it in a way that puts the interests of the organization first. Now, there are some examples out there of organizations. These clearly are organizations that you see up on the slide that are fulfilling their fiduciary duties. There are also examples, and you're going to know them when you see them out there in the nonprofit world of organizations that are not. You already tried an example of your own. These are things that can happen, can and do happen out there. The solutions, again, are pretty simple. Rules and policies for how to identify conflicts of interest and procedures for dealing with them. The duty of loyalty tends to be the one that concerns most people. In my own personal opinion, it's the duty of care that we should care about the most. That I think probably gets organizations into the most trouble through having passive boards. Thoughts about that? I have a question. Yes. In the board, how do people come to like those roles? Like, is it voted on by the board once you get together, or like, how is it that the husband and wife became president and vice president? We were an elected board, and we ran and elected independently, not even in a slate. And so Tim, the board president, ran at one point or another, and it was Tim and his wife. So she ran another time. Okay. It's a neat little organization. They're still chugging along. They like were you guys reelected every year? We had term limits. Another thing you guys could think about, in this case like this, is you could think about, for instance, staggered term limits. You could think about a way of separating that voting block. You could think about putting these officers on different committees. Or you could just think, as I did, about a, just a prohibition on married board members serving on the board together. There's active internet debates about this. And I'm not necessarily somebody who says, well, just because I'm married to somebody doesn't disqualify me from board service. You have to meet my husband. We don't agree on a lot of things. We're probably not going to be a voting block here. But it does concern people, and for legitimate reason, which is I'm no longer an independent board member. When I'm married to someone else, or I have very deep business ties to someone else on the board. George, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I was curious about that nonprofit organization. Uh -huh. When did you guys determine the term limits? Was that as you were organizing, or as you went along? We already had them. We already had term limits. Although good organizations here, let's put another one up here, solutions. Regular review of policies because life changes, right? And circumstances change. It's recommended practice out there for organizations to be reviewing their bylaws and reviewing their policies pretty regularly. Yeah? Is every board volunteer or are some boards paying? Great question. Anybody know the answer to that question? What would you guess? Are you Yeah, mostly volunteer. Remember, there's a lot of different kind of subgroups within the charitable world, and it's common for board members to be paid with private foundations. And you might, in fact, have several family members serving on a board together. I win the mega bucks overnight, I get real deep pockets, and I pull a big check out of my pocket, and I form the Professor Gaisley Foundation for proficient 362 students, give you guys all great scholarships. Who am I going to put on the board? My family, right? Because it's my family foundation. 
and I may pay them, but fewer, I think we're down to about 1% of all nonprofits out there now have paid board members. Even in just my career, you know, 15 years or so, I've seen some organizations 15 years ago they were paying their board members, and you look at their 990s today and they're not anymore. So you can definitely see the normativism going on there and moving away from that as a practice that they think might create some conflicts of interest for board members. That's what you were thinking of, right? Um, we're out of time. Thanks for your attention, everybody. It was good to see you all. Enjoy your call.